Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Uh, For those of you that are joining for the first time, these cafes were something that we started in response to the pandemic. And in fact, the first cafe started approximately a year ago, um, about a week after we went into lockdown here in Toronto, Canada. And uh, for us, it was really um, a gut level uh, response to what was happening and the need to gather our community and connect and, and resource one another, um, which is what always happens when we, when we create community well. Uh, so I'm Anahid and I'm one of the co-founders of Animal Leadership. Um, as you know, we're one of the top uh, inclusion companies in this part of the world. Um, our passion is creating spaces where people matter and belong. And of course, those words are easy to say, I'm probably among the hardest um, string of words in the, the human language to actually put into practice. So that's why we're here. Um, and we work with organizations across uh, different sectors, uh, across North America and beyond. And, um, and this is among my favorite parts of the job um, uh, is, is having these conversations. So that's me and my two guests here today um, for the topic that we're gonna be talking about The title of today's cafe is The Roots of Rumi, a Cultural Celebration versus Appropriation. And um, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this in a a moment, but um, the genesis of this behind this topic was a post that one of my guests, Khashayar, put up um, before the the new year, um, talking about the roots of Rumi. And Khashayar and I, we, we both come from um, a Persian uh, background. And I was surprised by his post because even as a fellow Persian, I didn't know the, the full um, extent of the roots of Rumi. So it got me really thinking about how many of us know when we refer to other cultural celebrations or art or um, practices, how grounded are we in where those practices come from and what do we do to acknowledge and what does appropriate acknowledgement look like? And of course, then since that time, um, there's been the shootings in Atlanta, which was has brought up once again, the specter of East Asian um, racism. And this is a flip side to the question of how do we celebrate and acknowledge other cultures art is how do we honor and stand beside um, other cultures and communities when they are hit hard, when they are grieving, and what does that look like? So we're gonna really look at this whole question of what does it look like to ally ourselves with cultures that are different than ours, but also um, less represented, less visible, and of course have less cultural power, okay? So, um, so Khashayar, uh, as I said, um, uh, I, we have known of one another. I formally met him through this, um, after this Facebook post and we stayed in, in contact. And then I had the great honor of interviewing him for my podcast, Sound Waves of Belonging, which is a fantastic interview, I must say, um, which also touches on Rumi, but beyond Rumi to really looking at um, the trauma of immigration, um, the path to belonging when, when it's Um, when one receives messages that one is not welcome and the redeeming power of art 
uh, to foster that sense of belonging. And Hashayar is a beautiful poet and his first book of poetry just arrived on his doorstep this morning. So Hashayar, oh. I'm gonna invite you to hold it up for us. Any of you that have ever written a book know what a big deal that is, especially the first book. It's like the first child in a way. Um, so Hashayar, do you wanna just say a couple words? Yeah, I, um, a, I'm mainly, a, uh, I, more than anything, I'm a reader, writer, poet, and, uh, you know, a lover of poetry. And uh, I don't want, uh, and I don't want to be, you know, yeah, that's, I guess that, that would be it, actually. <laughs> a lover of words in all their forms, yeah. and a marvelous um, master of them. Uh, the other, um, our other guest is Emma Lind, Dr. Emma Lind. Um, Emma just received her PhD two months ago, and she's one of the senior um, inclusion facilitators here at Anima. She also teaches um, at a post-secondary institution, and she um, knows a lot about a lot, but especially um, Emma teaches our Decoding Race for White Leaders course and um, is a critical um, critical uh, um, uh, power theorist and uh, um, has done a lot of work, especially around systems and cultures of white supremacy and what this um, looks like in the workplace. So she's gonna bring it, be bringing in some of the workplace perspective um, in terms of acknowledging, welcoming, celebrating, standing beside um, people from a different identity and uh, cultural background. So Emma, do you wanna just do a quick? Yeah, well, I'm really, I'm really thrilled to be here. And what I'm so excited about um, getting into issues of uh, culture, identity, belonging and appropriation because as a progressive white person, one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of movements and organizations is that practices of appropriation are often entered into in order to communicate some sort of admiration. And so there's, what, I, what I have been working with over the last 20 years is really trying to get beyond the impact and intent debate and try to get to the core of what's going on when one of the only models for inclusion that the dominant culture encourages is actually one that does a lot of harm. And, uh, and that's not cultural inclusion and that's not even respectful representation. So, mm -hmm. so how can we go deeper? Because uh, I'm, I'm eager and hungry too. That's great, thanks Emma. And Emma, do you mind just pulling out some of the locations and uh, and uh, things here as I turn this my background off? Sure, we've got um, lots of folks in Toronto, uh, Edmonton, Scotland, uh, Bracebridge, Ottawa. Indiana, Montreal, um, yeah, Burnaby. Oh, welcome everybody. The Kawarthas, Vancouver, St. John's. This is fun. I now, I'm joining you from uh, Treaty 6 territory in the homeland of the Métis in Saskatoon. Mm. Um, Hamilton and toddler parenting. Aren't those, that feels like a location, eh? Toddler parenting. I am also in that space, yeah. Mm. Thank you, Emma. And I'm also seeing some uh, 
some people checking in around how how you're doing curious a little distracted yes the toddler parenting i will say i'm feeling very excited to be here but on a deeper level um feeling a lot of sadness uh about where we're at with the pandemic here in toronto um uh um about to face another shutdown potentially and uh, the same um rates of icu admissions that we had at the beginning of this pandemic so um along with many other things that's feeling uh um just feeling that yeah and still coping with global anti-asian events joining for a breath yeah thank you so uh feeling tired pretty happy feeling my kids kids giggle that's lovely so lovely to see the the people that are sharing um you can just it's so energizing to take joy from others to feel so i'm gonna start our conversation uh as i shared earlier with where this topic um got framed for me and as i said earlier it got primed um, as i was scrolling through facebook one day and i saw this post from Khashayar, uh as a, which as i said earlier as a fellow um uh persian um i was uh i was surprised by and it really got me thinking about how i was even um, exploring and acknowledging exports from my own cultural background, never mind about other cultural backgrounds. Okay, so I'm going to read the um, the post here, and then Hashayar, I'll ask you to say a little bit more about um, Rumi and how what your experiences of Rumi um, being acknowledged in the West as kind of the greatest Iranian export, if you like. So I'll read what you wrote. Uh, I'm reading the essential Rumi. Oh. And I'll give a caveat. This is, of course, not necessarily what Khashayar uh, would say to a professional audience. It's in the context of social media and Facebook among friends. So um, I share this with your permission, Khashayar. Um, and, and I just wanted to say something that the essential Rumi that is mentioned in the post is actually an older version. The newer version is much better, which since I've checked. So anyway, okay, that's, that's just a caveat that needs to be said. Okay, thank you. There's been a, an improvement. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, so I'm reading The Essential Rumi for a little um, poem project I'm doing. I never read Rumi in English since I can read him in Farsi, which is the official language of, of Iran, and own the majority of his works in Farsi. And I'm baffled by the poetry in there. First of all, where do these white translators find short minimalist poems that translate to four to five line quarter page poems Rumi wrote two books of poetry, the Divan Shams, which holds 3,300 plus ghazals that are dense, 10 to 16 verse poems, and the Math Navi, which are long stories, none of which fit into a minimalist short poem. Uh, where are these minimalist short poems coming from? Are they fragments translated from the ghazals? Are they actually Rumi's prose translated as poetry? And it's almost impossible to find the original poems based on the translations. And as a Persian who grew up listening to Rumi in all corners of our culture, I can't say I recognize a single one. And I must say, as an aside, for those of you that don't know, Iranian culture, one of the 
most beautiful, I think, things about Iranian culture is that it's steeped in poetry. You can't walk anywhere in downtown Tehran, for example, without seeing poetry on the side of buildings, without people often reciting a line of poetry to you and greeting or as you leave a, um, a, a, a conversation without it. It's everywhere. It's, it's sort of part of the waters that Persian people move through. So this is, you know, this context is not a, is not a, um, a small, a small one. It's quite a, it's a very strong underpinning of Persian culture. And of course, Rumi being one of the dominant Persian um, poets. Um, so to continue, there's a couple more sentences here from this um, post. Where are all these tiny minimalist aggressively, <laughs> let this line, where are all these tiny minimalist aggressively palatable poems, aggressively palatable? If we could just put that on a t-shirt, um, poems coming from. Where is all the mention of Allah and Islam? Where is the Islamic in this Islamic mysticism? The Essential Rumi is a whitewashed book of Islamophilia where white writers dissolve the ideology so far to say, look at how beautiful Islam can be while absolutely erasing all that is Islamic about it to begin with. The, the Essential Rumi is a fetishist book. So um, Khashayar, uh, I would love to turn it over to you as, a, as another Persian poet that is, who just received his first poetry book today <laughs> to just speak about um, uh, the, the kind of the way that Rumi has been translated in the West and perhaps just to talk about how Persian culture broadly is also um, translated here in the West. So I'm gonna try my best to not go too far into anything because there's a lot to be said, but. I have to mention something very quickly and very, it's absolutely germane to this whole point, which is that there is like, due to the, I, I have to mention this because I have had this problem, but especially when there's a Persian audience involved, there's always the conflation of the uh, championing of Islamic culture against the Islamic Republic, which is always false. Like I, and I myself don't consider myself religiously Muslim, but I was born in, I'm not a devout religious Muslim person, but I was born and raised in a culturally Muslim household, mm -hmm. which means that uh, when I see, like, I'm not, uh, mm -hmm. I'm just saying like that championing Islamic culture has nothing to do with mm -hmm. siding with the atrocities of the Islamic Republic. And that has to be said that the Islamic Republic is a, you know, regime that needs to, uh, mm -hmm. anyway, but what was, uh, so uh, as I said, like the Persophilia throughout the 15th to 18th, 19th century, it makes uh, Germany, France and Britain cultural centers for Persian studies. And it kind of outsources all the major scholarship and, uh, you know, translations of Rumi to like Ger to German language, French language and Britain, Britain. And it creates this. And at the same time, there is a difference between that. Like in Britain, there are a lot of wonderful Persian studies courses taught by white authors who are fully fluent in, in Farsi and so like sometimes have better knowledge than some uh, but it has to be said that the essential Rumi by Colmer Box is 
translated by an author who has zero knowledge of like it's it's basically a google translate translation it's a it's a dictionary translation and because of that a lot of the things that were not translated were basically erased and again like i said it ha- the book has been updated like the version that i was mentioning was was i think the 2001 version where you can see this a lot and this is not just rumi it, you can see this with like hafiz and so you can see these quotes especially in the sufi verse mm-hmm. and sufism being the most popular mm-hmm. and form of islamic thought in the west for a good reason that we may or may not get into and uh uh it's actually can you can you say just a couple lines about why that is that's so so it's because sufism was introduced to the west by these uh scholars who uh so um basically like there's a lot of speculation about sufism which is that um uh, it's not actually so, sorry, not speculation, but for example, like Rumi wrote a lot. Like the Divana Shams is dedicated to Shams Tabriz, and who was a man that Rumi met in his forties. And there's a lot of speculation that there were homosexual lovers. And what is done to this information is instead of saying that this is a part of Islamic culture of the time, mm-hmm. it is taken as oh, look at this sect of Islam as opposing the monolithic Islam that we all know and fear. Mm-hmm. And look at this, all this mention of wine and dance and homosexuality mm-hmm. and see how different it is from that monolith of mm-hmm. Islam that you are aware of, mm-hmm. which is false because there is a lot of things about Islam at the time. Like I'm not going to contest the... Mm -hmm. women's rights issues because it has always been an issue but -hmm. for example homosexuality was like homosexual experiences were incredibly common until the uh, until the introduction of Mm -hmm. britain france britain france to persia there Mm -hmm. is but so instead of saying that this is a part of islam the west has taken it as a fetish and says Look, this is a good Islam. This is what you can like. This is, you know how, you know that Islam that you fear? This is not that. And it, it, it opposes this because we, in the post 9-11 world, there's this monolithic uh, blooming Islam that is quite, that is quite commonly to be feared. Mm-hmm. And instead of expanding our knowledge of Islam and saying Islam is not as monolithic as we think, there's mm-hmm. 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. There's Muslims in China, Africa, North America, South America. There's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, we're saying that Sufism mm-hmm. is a sect of Islam. Look, it is Islam, but it's not the one you fear. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Can I yeah. jump in just for a moment, Khashaya, because what you're saying is actually really um, a bedrock idea um, in terms of power, because we know when groups don't have the power to represent themselves and make their own decisions and tell their own stories, what happens is, you know, the group gets painted with a singular paintbrush. Like all these Asians must be the same or or all Persian people must be the same or all um, people from an Islamic background must be the same. And unfortunately, like you said, since 9-11 must be dangerous, terrorist, um, kind of um, oppressive, certainly towards women. And we 
we forget that actually there's as much variation in the other as there is within our own group. And so most North Americans are able to see the finite distinctions between Christian culture, right? Between, um, you know, the alt-right, for example, right now, and the mainstream Christian community, there's a huge, like nobody would ever um, uh, confuse the two. Whereas Islam is still seen as this monolithic um, block. So this this point you're making um, and how the Sufism has been kind of adopted as a, as a, um, a more palatable form of Islam over the complex and rich history of Islamic culture is, is just a really powerful point. I just wanted to. So, so the truth is both inside and outside of Iran, Sufis, Sufism as a religion and Suf, devout Sufis are a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the Islamic religion. Mm-hmm. While the thought is, the thing is, like, for example, there's uh, there's some things that, like, is never discussed with Rumi. For example, how Rumi's thought was, like, first of all, Rumi was, like, uh, there's so much Quran, uh, Quranic thought in Rumi. There's so much. And there's also so much Islamic philosophy in Rumi. And there's always this, uh, this uh, there's, in Iran, there's very... And in, in scholarship of Rumi in like the Farsi language, at least as far as I know, there's always this uh, discourse of Rumi as philosopher and Rumi as poet. And it's always quite nuanced. But in the West, there has been very often you can see that Islamic, even though like you can see, like, for example, you can see like Kierkegaard and Aquinas and uh, uh, St. Augustine, all these people who are clear, like they are incredibly Christian philosophers, they're always without a doubt a philosopher, but as soon as an Islamic thinker comes, they are dismissed as theosophy, theology, or, mm-hmm. or even like worse, sophistry. Mm-hmm. And they are excluded from philosophy. And this is the same, this is not just with the uh, mm-hmm. Persian philosophy or Islamic philosophy. This is the same with, uh, you know, African uh, philosophy that they, Africa uh, or like diaspora Caribbean philosophy that it has been so often dismissed as philosophy just because it doesn't fit a few uh, 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 distinct uh, categories of the status quo while the status quo can afford to slide in and out of tradition as Mm -hmm. to their will. But Mm -hmm. the other, like you said, the other has to always be coherent while the status quo can slide in and out of mm-hmm. tradition to their liking. Like, like uh, Schopenhauer can just discuss Buddhism and not, not be considered any different than mm-hmm. anyone else. But as soon as uh, an Eastern philosopher, an African philosopher, an Asian philosopher, they're dismissed quite easily as philosophy and as, mm-hmm. as an intellect. And they're instead uh, admired as aesthetics, as art. Yeah. And they're somewhat sometimes even dismissed as aesthetics and art. I'm going to try and not like over explain anything. So uh, I think I'm going to end it there. Well, that, no, that's that's great. That's really helpful context. I love that point, too, um, of who we consider to be the experts, i.e. philosophers and the Christian um, uh, poet philosophers, um, you know, kind of entrenched in the canon of uh, Western, um, the the roots of Western culture. And yet, um, and I think this is one of the things that happens when 
cultural exports happen from parts of the world that we consider to be um, uh, that are not our own and that we consider inferior in some way is that Rumi, who is a profound um, philosopher and and uh, um, kind of um, uh, expert in his home country becomes an artist in the West, you know, which like subjective, um, uh, you know, doesn't really know or kind of good for, for reading poetry, but not, not much beyond that. And um, so I just want to keep bringing this conversation back because of course, underpinning the question of how do we acknowledge without appropriating is the question of power and what, role do how and where do we acknowledge our power in relationship to the culture of the identity that is being represented uh so Emma, i want to shift it over to you um as you were listening to Hashiyar and and just thinking about this question of how do we acknowledge different cultures um to really let's let's call it out to white um mm -hmm. judeo-western um judeo-christian culture what are what are thoughts that you have about how to do that well and um, not so well in your own experience? Yeah, well, um, you know, I've I've been listening to Hashayar for like ten minutes. And I feel like a bobblehead because I I couldn't uh, I just found myself like nodding excessively. So thank you. This is really stimulating. Um, one of the things that really struck me, you were talking about how. Um, in the Western celebration of Rumi, that Islamic mysticism was kind of de-Islamified. And at the most basic level, fundamentally, you're calling attention to the ways that not all parts of ourselves are welcome in a, in, in a context defined by hierarchy and power. And I really appreciated how you invited us to think about the legacies we've inherited uh, consciously and unconsciously. So for instance, if I'm walking around in some post pandemic fantasy, if I'm walking around an indigo bookstore and <laughs> I come across an essential roomy book on the shelf or worse than that, you know, a note card with one of those quarter page quotations. Um, you're inviting me to think about participating in a centuries old legacy of fetishizing Rumi's words in the West in a particular context. Um, and, and the ways in which whole academies in, as you say, England and France and Germany were established. And actually, like when you talk about the academic study of Rumi in the 18th and 19th centuries, you're reminding us that expertise has been built and validated and legitimized through a relationship to um, so-called intercultural fluency that the dominant culture gets to control. So that, you know, like Westerners have named themselves as experts based on uh, mm -hmm. a relationship that isn't actually a relationship, but gets kind of marketed as a relationship and even identified as a relationship. So fundamentally, the, the patterns and the themes that I was taking out of um, your analysis was um, trying to define um, what like lowercase c culture means, because I think, and so, so we can talk about, you know, like cultures and the ways that they're misunderstood, but then like as I'm walking through Indigo books, like that's also a culture. And I'm thinking about what it means to live and work in organizations 
I mean, sometimes in our work lives, we um, occupy the most diverse spaces that we'll find in the rest of our lives. For those of us who live in so-called coherent or homogenous families and so on. So, um, so I was also struck by another uh, line you said, which was the other always has to be coherent while the status quo gets to have contradictions. Mm. And I'm wondering like, how does that notion of coherence play out in our, in our work lives? Mm -hmm. uh, where are the, mm -hmm. where are the interpersonal and the institutional um, invitations, if not orders to stay coherent? Mm. Um, in, and, and so, Mm. <laughs> so, gosh, I feel like you had the very fluent mm. and organized um, uh, flow to your narrative, and I'm and I'm uh, know, encountering a messy first draft. No, I think um, it, it strikes oh me God. that story you were telling me earlier about mm. that moment where you noticed um, uh -huh, yes. because we internalize that um, uh, pressure to to stay. Um, mm -hmm. Was I? I would say there's strong pressure within our own culture to stay, um, to maintain our own cultural hegemony, like mm -hmm. to, maintain, to keep propping up and white culture because we can't see it. And so I wonder if you can speak to that story yeah. about noticing um, your culture and what that opened up for you. Sure. So I was raised Anglican um, and in a family of English immigrants, though we never called ourselves immigrants. Um, and, uh, and the Anglican church is the Church of England. And my best friend is Jewish. And I attended her son's bar mitzvah. And I remember sitting in the synagogue and uh, with my best friend, and her, her friends and neighbors, who I know quite well, because I'm a part of her family. So I have sat at Seder tables with these folks and Halloween with these folks. And so I, I know them, even though they're not my friends personally. And I was watching how during the three hour bar mitzvah, all of these people I know to be very generous and very wonderful, were talking through the whole religious service. And I kept looking at them as though to say like, can't you see what you're doing? Like, shut up, you're being rude. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I couldn't believe that people would dare enter the synagogue late. And I, it was really, it, for me, it was a command performance and I didn't understand how um, these people who loved this kid as much as I did were being so rude. Mm -hmm. And then I had a virtually out of body experience and I looked around and I realized that in fact, I was a cultural outsider and I was in somebody else's territory culturally. And I was the only one who thought the cultural behaviors around me were out of place. Mm. So how dare I think that I knew the end? I looked around and I thought, oh, if this were my culture, I would look to that blonde woman in the front row and think she looked pretty uptight. And it was then that I kind of saw uh, like a hallway of mirrors in my consciousness where I realized what goes, what passes as polite behavior in my church is also what passes as polite behavior 
in boardrooms, in classrooms, in mm. the House of Commons, and mm. so on. And I realized that actually, I live in the world where I expect my cultural reference points to be echoed in every step I take all day long. Mm. And that I don't code switch. I don't actually spend a lot of my time worrying that my my um, unguarded ethnicity will you know come pouring out. My unguarded ethnicity is status quo. So I'm as as Kashyar said, I get to have all kinds of contradictions, and um, and I realize like oh this is a cultural venue where <clears throat> speaking while the cantor chants is not necessarily rude. And actually, a, a, a religious service doesn't need to take 61 minutes the way it does in my cultural context. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful, Emma. I um, You've heard a lot from both speakers. And if anyone, if you want to take them, if there's any questions or comments that come up, maybe we'll pause. We're going to go into small groups, but we can just keep it here. Um, let's just take a little pause break to hear from some folks that are on the session here. What are, what is, uh, as you hear the conversation, what are some questions or thoughts that come up for you? Nikki. Hey, I'm uh, Nikki. I was just uh, listening to when you were talking about uh, what do we need to do to actually start seeing these sort of like gaps in our dominant ideology. Mm -hmm. And I keep on thinking of this one philosopher, Jose Medina. Mm -hmm. He would argue that, uh, what we need in those situations is epistemic friction, that friction between the two different cultures. So I think that's what we were describing. And I think the only other way to get around that is uh, interaction with, with other cultures, but authentic ones, not this like propped up one that we're seeing how uh, Rumi is uh, given without any of the culture context, but you can generate that epistemic friction by actually authentically uh, engaging with other cultures, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sorry, may I ask for you to put the name of that philosopher in the chat? I would love to check them out. Epistemic friction mm -hmm. is a delicious term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Which is another reminder that, um, like, the word friction, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, I think of the heat generated through friction, I think of it as energy. It's not necessarily destructive. But um, it's a reminder that, that we move knowledge, we make knowledge. It's not always necessarily grounded in comfort, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like if we're going to do deep work, it's not going to be excessively palatable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any other, um, any other responses or, or thoughts before we move on? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Hanif. Uh, thanks so much. Um, so I, um, I just want to speak briefly about um, my own experiences of um, participating in sort of formalized Muslim uh, spaces, um, attending um, prayers at, at um, mosques, for instance, in Vancouver. And um, and you know, having traveled uh, quite extensively through the, the, the landscapes of, of Muslims in uh, Asia and Africa and uh, West Asia, um, I'm 
I feel like the the tensions that exist and the pluralities that exist within Muslim societies um, have not been referenced here. That you know, going to going to the mosque in in Vancouver, for instance, or elsewhere, there was the, a a real sense of Sufism or the mystical aspects of Islam um, being something that one should not indulge in at all, because this was an innovation. Uh, and that, that expression, innovation, or in Arabic, bidah, was something that was referenced frequently, also in, in travels. And from my own experience, coming across the work of Coleman Box was, was a revelation. Mm. Um, it really opened up a, a space to, to think about the kind of, my own kind of incoherent thoughts about wanting to lead some kind of mystical life while still feeling comfortable mm -hmm. in, you know, Muslim spaces. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, it, 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 it caused me to kind of leave those formalized Muslim spaces because I didn't feel like there was a, a, an opportunity to actually hear about this rich tradition. And I think even if we look back in, in the history of Muslim societies, like if we think about the tensions in uh, the Abbasid culture or, you know, uh, empire, for instance, between the, the jurists, the, the legal interpretations or the, the way in which, you know, Islam became this kind of legalized um, set of coherent, uh, circumscribed ideas. And those people who were um, looking for other ways of, cultivating a relationship with the divine, those are, are woven through Muslim histories. So sometimes in order to, to, um, to cultivate a spiritual life, one had to, to carve out these interstitial spaces. Uh, so Coleman Box, you know, I, I know he's been denounced as an appropriator in many different spaces. I'm not necessarily saying that Kashayar is uh, referring to him in that sense, but I've, I've read other articles about him, uh, was crucial. And I think if you look at his own experiences, he, he does speak about his own mystical encounters and his relationship with uh, a great Sufi scholar, Bawa Moyadin. Um, so, and, you know, inevitably when when these ideas, complex ideas, ideas that are, or, you know, the, the, the sort of that mystical experience, it, it gets translated into different spaces. It has to assume different forms. The container is different. Mm -hmm. No one is going to read an extended, uh, necessarily here, uh, an extended, um, you know, set of, of lines of poetry. Maybe it, it you know, uh, what Coma Box did was to, was to popularize it. And I think that there's a space for that as well, because, uh, you know, I mean, I can speak for a number of Muslims that I know that this has been a vehicle back to Islam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one thing I would like to say is like, I, I think, I think, first of all, I think I have to mention this, like, again, I, I'm not religiously Muslim and I always feel myself like a little bit out of place I think this uh, so uh, I was grown like culturally Muslim and what I wanted to say was that like I think something that needed to be mentioned much earlier was that in 
in the Islamic world, Sufism is kind of, it's somewhat um, treated as secular. So like in the Islamic world, it's like Sufism is like, is like I, to, to some point even like, so Sufism's uh, like synonymization of love, madness and God and, and uh, it's, it, at least this is the case in Iran and I know it's the case somewhat in Turkey and Afghanistan. So, which another thing that needs to be mentioned is that Rumi was born in Afghanistan, wrote in Farsi, which is like the language of Iran, but resided in Turkey. So there's, it belongs to three different cultures. But so what happens is that there's a lot of people within, so, um, Within the, within the culture of Islam, the people who understand the Quranic references don't want to get, go near Sufism. And the people who like Sufism don't want to go near Islam. So a lot of the, I, I understand that Coleman Barks is, an inter, is a great uh, gateway. That's, uh, but Coleman Barks being the most uh, popular and absolute, like, if I'm not mistaken, Coleman Barks's Rumi is the absolute most sold poetry book in the entire world. And it was just taken over by Rupi Kaur. And I think something that needs to be said is that within, like, so the Persian uh, scholarship in the West, well, that exists for decades. And what, what's happening is that we need someone from within the culture, like someone who understands, we need some, and this is something that I'm trying to do is, I think we, see we need someone to translate Sufism in a way that references, like I'm, I'm talking in a way that we don't want the erasure of Islam from Sufism because Islam comes from Sufism. Sorry, Sufism comes from Islam. And first of all, that's something that is happening very quickly and very fastly in Coleman Barks. And that's something that I'm against. I'm against in general, translating uh, Rumi without a knowledge of Farsi. That's uh, that I am against. And this is something that we've been seeing a lot in Canada, a lot that I think something that is happening very rapidly is the encouragement of translation without knowledge of the source language. And that's something that I'm against because that leads quickly to uh, uh, you know, that, that can be harmful in my view, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. I, in another way, I'm not a big enough uh, part of the Islamic, like a religiously Islamic uh, uh, population to speak on the Islamic mm -hmm. experience of Rumi. Mm -hmm. And that is something I, I'm just going to say, I, I can't speak to that because I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I'm not a devout Muslim. I don't pray. I, I look like a Muslim and that's it. I take mis I'm mistaken for a Muslim and that's it. That's as much as my relationship to Islam goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, sorry, I had some things written down here yeah. in Turkish. And another thing is what I was going to say is that appropriation happens in other levels than writing and translating, which is that appropriation also happens in terms of marketing and you can like you can ask yourself why is coleman barks the most popular uh, translation of rumi 
Like, why, why is that? Like, there are all these uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, West Asian studies. Uh, there's all these books around the world. Why was Coleman Barks's Rumi the one that was sold the most? Well, there's also like talks about like, you know, the number of books printed and all that and like who signed it. But there's also the, uh, there's also the idea of how little opposition it put to the status quo and how little, because like, why is the most sold book of poetry in the world I mean, used to that now second most sold poetry book in the world, the Coleman Barks Rumi, when uh, so many other iterations of Rumi exist. I'm not saying there's uh, there's wonderful scholars that have put all the time and effort into it. And why is why is this one being pushed the hardest as opposed to why is this why was this translated this way? That's one part of a chain. Why was this marketed this way? is another part yeah i was reinforcing what you were saying Khashayar, just about the um you know the cultural exports that sell the best are those that seem to really reinforce the stereotypes <laughs> the western stereotypes yeah were you, were you gonna finish and then i had a couple um i wanted to uh pose a couple questions to the group uh, I, I saw that, uh, well, well, sorry, I, I, Hanif also put a question in the chat, which is, yeah, true, like Coleman Barks had, like, again, like, we're not talking just about why Coleman Barks mm -hmm. did what he did, but why this book is the most sold, the most marketed, and the most aggressive, like, again, like, appropriation doesn't, doesn't only happen when you're writing something. There's also appropriation, like, at, like, let's, like, actually, let's leave Coleman Barks for a moment. And in post 9-11, like, U.S., there are a lot of books of West Asian authors that were top sellers, and they are each and every single one of them by writers of uh, uh, West Asian descent who are, like, who fled their countries and wrote about tales of human rights violations. So here... The, the human rights violations are true and the writer is true to their story. There's no appropriation there. But why is this the top selling and number one book of like Penguin Random House? Why is this book the book that uh, Harper Collins put out number one? You know, mm -hmm. it's there's a cultural background. There's there's a lot more to appropriation that doesn't meet the pen. There's people behind the scenes that they're like, okay, we want this cultural yeah. uh, background for this. Uh, uh, I, just, I just put into the chat, um, you know, when cultural exports fit the uh, dominant stereotypes, they sell the best. And one of the most common selling Persian um, books is around the oppressed women, especially fleeing the country with one or more children or having to go back and rescue their children from the bad um, um, all the bad, uh, dangerous Persian terrorist men. Um, and if I see another book with that theme, um, or Susan Sarandon movie, um, I will have to, uh, launch a campaign. So yes, yes, there's no doubt. And what we're talking about here for people on the call is we're talking about patterns. So um, I, we're using Rumi as a microcosm of what tends to happen for, um, 
toward cultures that are non-white, um, non-Christian um, based across the board and across the world. And, and, and so, you know, I don't want to get too much in the, the, the rabbit hole of Rumi, but I want to say that Rumi illustrates an ongoing pattern. And so we're going to move into, into conversation. I want to give people a chance to, to think about and, and think about how this would apply in the workplace. And before we do that, I'm going to pull out some of the tips that our speakers have already given. So how do we... Um, um, acknowledge um, cultural differences in a way that builds relationship and is respectful. So I'm going to pull out in no particular order. One is that, and Emma, you spoke to this, we need to notice and be able to name our own cultural roots. Um, first and foremost, if we can't see the waters that we ourselves swim in and the, the dominant cultural influences that have informed who we are, it is very hard to, to recognize um, respectfully, somebody else's culture. Um, or if we do recognize another person's culture, what tends to happen, this happens with a lot of white people that come into uh, diversity issues, is that I then overcompensate. And I'm like overdoing it in a way that is very awkward for the person on the other side. And so it's about acknowledging, like I, you know, we can't help the culture, the identity, the background we're born into. And it's not about feeling bad about be, um, being born into a Christian um, uh, um, cultural tradition, whether we religiously follow or are culturally influenced by. It's not bad to come from a white um, ancestry, uh, 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 excuse me, European ancestry. It's about acknowledging that and acknowledging like for any of us, the really wonderful aspects of that cultural tradition and the problematic aspects and knowing and in what situations and circumstances to speak to both sides of that, that relationship that we, that we have. So for example, um, I remember somebody sharing um, an East Asian person um, talking about their white manager just after um, Chinese New Year. This is when it was called Chinese New Year, not Lunar New Year. Um, coming into the workplace with good intentions and handing out the red um, packages with with some money that are handed out as good luck um, in the in the um, Asian many Asian cultural East Asian cultural traditions. And this is an example of somebody um, really wanting to kind of celebrate um, East Asian culture in the workplace, but it was awkward. Um, and what was missing is. Um, so one of the things that's missing is like, uh, like seeing um, my own cultural tra tradition and at least being able to name that. So for example, you know, I come from a dominant, uh, you know, Judeo-cultural tradition. I know this isn't my culture, but, and, and even being able to acknowledge that is, is really important. The second part is we letting people that come from that cultural background um, um, lead and supporting. So in the example I just have given, going to the East Asian um, employees and, and recognizing, do you celebrate Lunar New Year? Okay, what can I do? What can we do as an organization to, to, um, to celebrate with you? Would you like to do something? What would you like to do? Um, here's some thoughts I have. What thought? And, and then I'm supporting and I'm amplifying rather than using another person's culture to uplift and virtue signal in a way. That's how it can be read. Um, the third um, um, idea that got named here was um, 
start unpacking the monolith that other cultures um, are represented as. And so, you know, don't expect the sole East Asian or five East Asian people in your organization to represent the entirety of East Asian culture. Um, you know, like any area uh, that we learn about, who are the key voices? Um, how do you kind of, um, what are the nuances and how the culture gets talked about? We've actually been very blessed in this conversation and seeing some of that nuance come forward around Persian culture between Hanif and Hashayar. Like the, the nuances of, of, of Rumi and Sufism versus dominant Islam and how they interpreted by different people in that, that happens in every culture. And so the more we can be literate in, oh, it's not just that Rumi is, 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 comes from an Islamic context, but, oh, what are some of the nuances in Islamic um, the Islamic context? How is Rumi positioned? What are some of the other dominant Islamic cultural influences? And um, I don't have to be an expert, but if I can just be a little bit knowledgeable, I'm able to navigate when those tensions, especially come up in my own workplace or my own community. What without, again, over or undercompensating, which is what people tend to do when they have no idea of what to do. Okay. So those are um, a couple of themes I want to pull out. And now I want to share a couple of um, takeaways from the, the conversation. As I said earlier, um, knowing and naming our own um, cultural roots and nuances is, is really important. Uh, white, um, you know, there's a difference between our own cultural ancestry and the pressures of dominant culture. And I'm going to tease that apart. So dominant culture, which is whiteness, like white white supremacy kind of erases all nuances. And so the difference between somebody who is of Scottish English ancestry is sort of also um, equated with somebody who is of uh, um, Germanic um, uh, French ancestry or, or um, Northern Europe, Denmark, or it all gets pushed together into the same um, category as well. And so, you know, being it's not enough to know that I'm part of white culture or even like European culture what are the particular um what are the what's your own particular ancestry and the more you can kind of know that that becomes um, a foundation to to respond from um this is really important take the lead from people that represent that culture in particular so as I said earlier um, you know, if you're wanting to do something for Ramadan um, or, or, or um, Lunar New Year or um, whatever it might be, generally going to people that represent that um, culture or identity and asking what they would like um, is, is really important and letting them take the lead. Um, even when, when somebody new is hired into an organization, if you're aware that they represent a different culture um, background, even asking, um, you know, um, a lot of organizations are in the process of hiring, for example, right now, um, uh, black, black um, employees, because that unfortunately was not happening to the extent it should have over the last number of years. Um, so hiring somebody um, at the beginning, uh, think about um, naming, you know, we, we are still a, a white dominant organization. We recognize that. We really want to, to ensure that you have a positive experience here without singling you out, what are things that we can do to support you? Um, I want, you know, I want you to know my door is always open to any feedback you might have. Um, you know, what, what are, and just 
even starting that conversation from the get-go, the start of a relationship can be really valuable and important. Um, and then without expecting that person to represent their entire um, culture, right? So in that example I just gave, acknowledging, and we know that you're not going to speak for all um, Black employees in the organization. We're not expecting that of you. Here's where we're at. Here's the learning that we as an organization are doing about Black um, uh um, at, about anti-black racism, but just for you, we'd be curious, like, you know, what would work for you? And that would be helpful in, um, alongside the broader learning that we are doing about how to support black employees, um, generally. Okay. So you don't expect the person to speak for the whole, but it can be helpful building that bridge. Um, thirdly, um, becoming familiar with, with cultural nuances. Um, so we talked about that our own, but within the other. And so um, knowing that there's differences in terms of uh, um, just like there's differences when we go into a Catholic church versus a Protestant church. Um, if we are going to go to church, it can be helpful um, if we have a number of Muslim identifying employees, for example, knowing what some of the nuances are like, you know, do they all identify as being Shia um, uh, from, from the Shia Islamic branch or Sunni? And if you don't even know what I'm talking about in that, that's a really good, right? At least know that because there's there's differences there. And then Sufism is, a, is another um, branch altogether. Um, learn some of the common language phrases. So again, uh, uh, so I guess an assumption I'm making here is that we start with responding to the cultural differences in our own backyard. So start with like, who's in your organization? Who's in your community? Who's in your neighborhood? You don't have to become a cultural expert on every culture under the, under the sun, but start with those that you're most directly in relationship to. And so um, knowing the, um, like it was just the Persian New Year um, on March 21st. And uh, the way we recognize that is Nuruz Mubarak. And again, depending what culture, um, Iran, um, in Iran, we say that differently than is said in, in, um, uh, in other, um, in other uh, languages. Um, Farsi pronounces it differently than, anyway, so knowing that the language phrases, um, being able to say simple things um, really matters. It's like knowing how to pronounce somebody's name correctly. Again, you don't have to be able to say more beyond that, but it just shows that I've taken time to look up and I can say Nuruz Mubarak to you when you come, come into work. And especially um, show up when that um, part of somebody's community or identity has been hit. And I am shocked by um, um, how, you know, our members of our um, East Asian community feeling um, it's we all feel isolated. I think many of us during this time of pandemic, but particularly when um, something like what happened in, in Atlanta happens, it's the most um, violent in a way um, specter of East Asian racism that has been occurring since the beginning of this pandemic. And of course was always there beforehand, but has been more prominent since. How are we showing up for that? Have we reached out to East Asian members of our organization and team? Have we raised it um, visit, like as an organization? Um, uh, we don't have to, again, put it on the backs of East Asian employees, but as an organization, we can just put some words around the beginning of team meetings. You know, we acknowledge what happened in Atlanta. We acknowledge that the impact um, is particularly hard for members of our East Asian community. We acknowledge that this is um, an ongoing um, uh, part of an ongoing rise of, of, of violence 
Um, and we want to um, continue naming and allying with the East Asian community in the face of this. It doesn't have to be a lot, but that signaling really matters, especially in those moments where people are feeling really afraid and isolated. I'm gonna leave it at that. Um, in closing, uh, I want to thank you for coming. We're going to close with um, a poem from Chashayar from his new book, and I'm going to ask you to hold it up for us. And the poem, very um, fittingly, is about Rumi. Sorry, just once. Oh, here. <laughs> this is my book, which I received about two hours ago. So also... I think I forgot to mention this, which is that uh, one thing that needs to be mentioned is that your experiences are valid. It's just that you have to acknowledge your experience. Like for example, with, uh, like if you have an encounter with mysticism, yes, that experience is valid, but, in, uh, but write about your experience as opposed to going straight to translation. Like there are people like Alan Watts explored Zen, had an in incredible experience, and then wrote from his experience a new type of Zen, and that is valid. But then mm -hmm. there are people like Coleman Barks who have this experience, and they're like, okay, I, I had this mystical experience with Rumi, and now I'm going to go and translate Rumi. So anyway, mm -hmm. I'm going to read a poem called Genealogy of Rumi. Mm -hmm. It's dedicated to Christine, Christina Bailey. May she rest in peace. And can you um, remind us the title of your book, Hashayar? I'm going to put it it's here. It's called Me, You, Then Snow Yeah. by Gordon Hill Press. Actually. I'll put it in here. Yeah. Here. This is. And here's the link. Okay. Genealogy of Rumi. For Christina Bailey, may she rest in peace. He knew that he, this is the, uh, this is a quote. It starts with a quote. He knew that he was contending against a div and he put forth all his strength, but the div was mightier than he and overcame him and crushed him under his hands. From Ferdowsi's Shahnameh, translated by Helen Zimmern. Rumi says to leave behind all earthly possessions, to become divane, to act like a div, div from da'eva through Avestan. But da'eva makes devil through the Indo-European collection. Morality at the hands of etymology. Divane, now crazy from Swedish krasa, to crush, shatter, jagged edges of a consciousness once prevalent now too sharp to fit into any rounded conversation. But there's a second etymology that says, div through deva, deva makes divine. Rumi says, divanisho, is it become mad or become divine, to be touched, transcendent, gifted. Div, now chiefly demon, through Greek daemon, originally benevolent, semi-holy, disfemized by history. Crazy back to Persian becomes Majnun, possessed by a jinn, like genius, the Roman appropriation of daemon. Hmm. E.g., for example, Socrates had a daemon, Da Vinci had a genius. Jinns promised real by the Quran have become B-movie tropes now. For example, young girl moves to a rural town, her dorm room is possessed by a jinn. 
a gen, she can now carry like a venereal disease. She can become jende, a prostitute, jingiver. But Majnun is tragic, tragic obsession. Romeo at the end of his wits, driven to poetry by love, roaming the desert so long, parents have given up hope. Majnun, possessed, fragmented but whole, in eternal exile, prone to ventriloquy, often called schizophrenia. Wearing a thick layer of dusk as eyeshadow and sailing the choppy waters of taxi window blinds, staring out the window and into the mind, the sheer effort of existence scratched onto the spine, roaming the concrete deserts of indifference, days dictated by pharmaceuticals. Now ask me again about etymology. Deve, Daeva, Devil, or Deve, Deva, Divine. Thank you very much. Mm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you all for being here. Um, again, I want to just say that at the root of this and other conversations we have here is really this beautiful um, project that... Uh, you just uh, wrote about Khashayar and so did Richard Wagamese, which is how do we just get better at building relationships? Um, not with just those that we have a lot in common with, but particularly um, the noble work of building relationship with those that uh, we, um, that are different to ourselves. And it does, it takes work, but it's the most beautiful work. And thank you all for being part of it. We will see you at uh, next month's cafe is being led by Shaquille um, how to teach uh, um, anti-racism and diversity without shame and blame. And it's going to be connected in with some of the themes in the upcoming book release. Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.